0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stemcell.
1: Let us turn our attention to what might be the biggest and the most urgent current public health issue, COVID-19. Back in March, as the COVID-19 pandemic was just beginning to take hold here in the U.S., Serm leadership made a decision to invest $5 million into stem cell research related to COVID-19. The first clinical study on COVID was approved in April. Over the last six months, Serm has funded 18 projects, including three clinical stage studies. Our panel today will describe these clinical trials along with one of the discovery phase projects that is aiming at the vaccine development. We will hear about some other discoveries and translational projects during the COVID session tomorrow morning. I would like now to introduce our speakers. The session today will start with a presentation by Dr. John Zaya from City of Hope. Dr. Zaya is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and the Deputy Director for Clinical Research. He's also the program director for the City of Hope, CERM Alpha Stem Cell Clinic. He has finished his medical degree at Harvard University and his residency at uh, the St. Louis Children's Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. He has a very wonderful career with multiple accolades. And today he's going to present antibody use for the treatment or prevention of COVID-19. Our next speaker would be Dr. Michael Matei, who is a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. He has finished his medical degree at University of Pennsylvania and his fellowship at University of California San Francisco. His overall focus is in improving clinical care of patients with acute respiratory failure from acute respiratory distress syndrome and from sepsis. His presentation is titled Cellular Therapy for Acute Respiratory Failure, Mesenchymal Stromal Cells. Following that, we will hear from Dr. Leonid Groisman, who is an Associate Professor of Neurology at University of California, Irvine, and also our Assistant Clinical Director for the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic. He has finished his medical school in the Republic of Moldova and he is boarded and trained at USC as a neurocritical care physician. He is the principal investigator on four of our active clinical trials at UCI, including the CERM funded COVID trial, looking at human placental hematopoietic stem cell-derived natural killer cells. His talk is titled, United We Stand, Rounding up the session is Dr. Albert Wang, a professor of neurosurgery from Stanford University. Dr. Wang has finished his medical degree at Johns Hopkins and his postdoctoral fellowship again at Johns Hopkins, working in the biology of brain tumors. His presentation today is identifying the peptides that activate T cells in COVID-19 patients. Please enjoy the presentations of those very accomplished physicians coming from different disciplines to address one unique issue. We will return live for the panel discussion and Q&A session after they finish.
0: Thank you very much. I would like to talk to you about a,
2: what we think is a very interesting project that CIRM has funded It's called the Antibody Use for Treatment or Prevention of COVID-19. This is part of a study that we call the COVID Plasma Study, and I encourage you all to go to covidplasmastudy.com to get more information about this and possibly even sign up as a donor of plasma. So let's talk about the virus and the antibodies that react to it. This is the virus that you've seen so many times. In red, of course, is the spike protein, the S protein. It's a trimer. That means it has three proteins, each of which is an S protein that has an S1 subunit and terminal, and it contains the key receptor binding domain that allows the virus to attach to cells, and an S2, sub, which is the C-terminal region of that. It has an internal protein called the nucleocapsid protein, which is very immunogenic. Then it has a number of other proteins in the membrane and the envelope of the virus, about which less is known immunologically. This slide Looks a little confusing, but basically, if you look at the left side, these are positive COVID patients. They've all had positive tests, and they've been compared with those with, that have never had COVID, because they the serum was collected before there was any COVID two. And you can see here that, and it was displayed across the bottom is a number of viruses. The SARS-CoV-2 is right here. But then we have its cousin CoV, uh, which is really a SARS virus, CoV one. There's MERS, and then there's the common cold viruses. So you see these people, mostly all of them had common cold antibodies. Some of them actually have cross-react with MERS. And then they all have the standard influenza, adeno, uh, parainfluenza, respiratory syncytial virus with no difference between them. S1 and S2 are the most immunogenic and N, they are the most reactive of, of the antigens. And there's some cross-reaction between S2 and uh, the other common cold COVID-2s. The other thing that's important is to know that the antibody rises very early, it peaks at about two months, and then it goes down. Some people go down to undetectable levels, other people it stays at a fairly high level. It's a function of severity as shown here. So if you have the need for high oxygen flow during your illness, or you're on a respirator that's four or five, you have much higher antibody than if you had mild disease. So, in summary, the antibody rises early. Neutralization is present very soon. Neutralization antibody has a wide range in patients. Um, the height of its peak, uh, but not the time to the peak, correlates with severity. And then longevity varies from as short as two months to much longer on an individual basis. So, the question is how do you capture this? in what we call COVID convalescent plasma. Well, you're in for a plasmapheresis and it shows a gentleman that has gone in and he has become attached to this machine with blood flowing from one arm into the machine. It goes into a little centrifuge where the plasma is spun out of the blood. And you can see the red blood cells, the white cells and the plasma. You collect the plasma and you now have about 600 to 800 milliliters of plasma, and that can be divided into 200 milliliter units. And so one person can make between three and four units. They can give plasma about once every seven days, depending upon the the center, seven to 14 days. CCP was used in the US for the first time in April of this year uh, by the Mayo Clinic study, we call it the extended access study, and eventually enrolled more than 90,000 recipients. This was the basis for the FDA approval for an emergency use authorization that occurred on August 3rd, 2020, that allows the use of this material in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Now, who can receive CCP now? Well, that group of people, obviously, the ones that are covered under the emergency use, uh, use authorization. In addition, many clinical trials are ongoing around the country, both for early treatment or prevention after exposure. And these are control trials, and CCP is processed also into IVIG, and there's studies going on with IVIG, intravenous immune globulin, and we hope that soon there'll be intramuscular immune globulin for use in the therapy or prevention of COVID-19. So the main issues that we confronted was how do you identify a donor? They have to have with the from the virus, and we like to see evidence of that, either in terms of a test or a, a test for the virus or a test for antibody. We also want to see this go to underserved areas uh, in the state of California. Qualifying the volunteer for eligibility then is important, and then finally determining whether the plasma is actually effective. Um, The large studies from Mayo were not controlled, and so they were controversial in that regard. Uh, They tend to be controlled in other ways by matched cases, with those that got either high antibody versus no antibody, or those that got treated versus not treated. But we don't know if there's an antibody profile that could be therapeutic. In fact, we really don't know what is actually in CCP that might be therapeutic. So that's the goal of our study, and this is shown here. So we want to assist centers in finding plasma. We want to characterize the titer and the neutralizing properties of that plasma. And then we want to evaluate the recipient to see what effect it had in that recipient. This is our website. I encourage you to go covidplasmastudy.com. It has multiple languages. Um, It has an online consent for plasma testing as well as plasmapheresis. physician information uh, portal is on this this website, Um, and the physician can track um, his his or her convalescent donors. We have a multi-pronged strategy to get to all parts of the state, especially to cover the underserved communities. We start with the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic Network we go to blood banks. We go to federally qualified health centers, other community health centers, etc., to try to get our message out. And this is actually what happens. In the light blue is what the donor sees. The donor goes online, he gets identified. He can sense, he's screened. Um, and then we collect two tubes of blood from him for testing. And we coordinate the plasma collection for that particular patient. Um, it goes to, TGen TGen is an affiliate of City of Hope. It's located in Phoenix and in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's a major coronavirus center of expertise. And there we undergo certain tests, which I'll describe to you in just a minute. Um, City of Hope does the neutralizing tests and then the results are analyzed. In addition, the local physician finds his patient or her patient that is gonna get the infusion either under the EUA or, or an emergency IND and that patient then has plasma collected before and after the infusion. And we analyze those results as well, both for antibody and for RNA. What kind of antibody test do we do? Well, uh, the standard ELISA is done, and this is not that much different from many of the other ELISA's that you, you are probably familiar with. This one is made by Inbios. It's, it's a good test. Uh, it is for the S protein. We qualify the donor with, with a, uh, Qualification assay that proves you got enough antibody to be used as a donor. But then we can quantitate it as well. We can quantitate the antibody before and after infusion in the recipient, and then we can correlate that with, with outcome. We can also look at the peptide-specific nature of the antibody. And now here what we've done is taken peptides from coronaviruses and we've linked them to a marker, which is DNA. We aim to precipitate this. And then you can just sequence the result and the DNA sequence will tell you what peptide the antibody recognized. This shows you the, the way that's done schematically. We basically have a number of libraries. These are basically peptides that have been labeled with a barcoded DNA. And so are to the nuclear protein in the spike and they're 30 MERS, some are 64 MERS, and then some are combined with their cousins, let's say the other coronaviruses that are known. So, we eventually have a 100,000 30 mers that cover the full spectrum of coronavirus uh, peptides. This shows you a result of some of that epitope resolved, we call it detection of SARS CoV 2 response. This one here is the result with S protein, the upper one, and N protein is the lower one. And, uh, and going from left to right is the sequence of the protein. And you can see where along that sequence the peptide occurs that targeted the antibody response. And the N protein is certainly more very immunogenic as shown here. And we're trying to determine whether cross-reactivity to other COVIDs or whether any antibody profile correlates to outcome in our treated patients. We can neutralize as well. We can look for neutralization results. This is one example of a lentivirus that's been coated with a spike protein and that virus also encodes luciferase. So if it goes into a cell, it lights up the cell, and you can see it on a luminescence reader. But if antibody binds to that surface and prevents it from infecting the cells, there's no luciferase, and that means you've inhibited the virus. This is a pseudo-neutralization test. The problem with a true neutralization test is that you have to use the actual wild virus, which is restricted to use in BSL-3 facilities It makes it more difficult to do large numbers of studies. Here's another test that's available clinically, a surrogate virus neutralization test. Here you can actually put the receptor, the human ACE2 receptor on the plastic. This is a a well from the microtiter plate. You can then have a HRP conjugated receptor binding domain. So this is a peptide to which you can then form a color reaction if it binds, then a color will will appear. But if it doesn't, because it's been neutralized, you see no color. And that's an indication of neutralization. And there are several forms of this kind of surrogate virus neutralization test available. Finally, we want to see what happens, as I said, on that day after and seven days after treatment with CCP. And so we have a nanostring methodology. This is a company that can detect in blood uh, several hundred RNAs uh, RNAs that are trans- transcribed in, in the peripheral blood. And they will reflect immunological events, innate immune re- reactivity, adaptive immune reactivity, homeostatic things such as thrombotic events. And we're hoping to characterize the results uh, or the effects that are produced when CCP is used as therapy. So well, that's the summary of the study. This is our team and I thank them very much and I want to acknowledge them. Very helpful people. We are combined with TGen, with John Elton, I mentioned his work. Angela Cardosa does the neutralization test with us. Our hematologists who oversee the review of the donors for the um, plasmapheresis. The website under Cassandra Wesselman on Bio. Our outreach person, Katrin Tiemann, the various stem cell parts of the outreach, and then, of course, our project manager,
0: Virginia Laverish. Thank you very much, and I'll be glad to answer any questions. My topic for today is cellular therapy for acute respiratory
3: failure with a focus on mesenchymal stromal cells or MSCs. This slide shows my disclosures. Uh, There are no conflicts for this presentation, a variety of support from NIH funds, as well as importantly, from the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine for both our alpha stem cell clinic and recent support for our clinical trial to expand to UC Davis. Now, what do I do at work at UCSF? Well, I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician working in the intensive care unit. I do in addition basic and clinical research into acute respiratory failure, primarily from the acute respiratory distress syndrome. I spend a good deal of my time running clinical trials in critically ill patients. And uh, the rest of my time is spent mentoring students, residents, fellows, and young faculty. Now this slide is intended to give a brief overview both visually and otherwise of the acute respiratory distress syndrome, also known as ARDS. Uh, On the left hand side, you see a chest radiograph with bilateral pulmonary infiltrates and on the right hand side, you see protonaceous edema fluid in the alveoli. This is a form of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. ARDS occurs in 200,000 patients annually in the U.S. With the chest radiograph, as I've shown you here, as well as uh, the criteria of having mild to moderate or severe hypoxemia with a pao 2 fo 2 ratio less than 300 and mortality ranges from 25 to 45%. The main etiologies are bacterial and viral pneumonia, sepsis, aspiration, and trauma. We have made progress with supportive treatment with lung protective ventilation, prone positioning, and a fluid conservative strategy. These have all improved clinical outcomes as shown in the citations below. However, as shown on this slide, many therapies, uh, pharmacologic therapies have not been successful in improving clinical outcomes. Uh, There is mixed data on corticosteroids, but overall there has not been a consistent beneficial effect And the rest of the agents listed here, including surfactant, prostaglandin, anticytokines, statins, ketoconazole, activated protein C, beta agonists, and others have not been successful, perhaps in part because they're single-agent therapies. Now, the next slide provides, on the left-hand side, a visual idea of what are the pathways of injury in ARDS. And in this figure we have modeled an alveolus and on the left hand side it's air-filled where you can see a normal macrophage, normal epithelium with a type 2 cell that produces surfactant which is denoted by that white line and then a normal capillary with oxygenated red blood cells. But on this side you see the injured alveolus with pink protein-rich edema fluid a loss of the epithelial barrier replaced by hyaline membranes, a uh, injured type two cell, and inflammatory cells in the alveolus, including neutrophils and alveolar macrophages and other pro-inflammatory factors. The primary lesion is over here at the capillary level, where you see these gaps between the endothelial cells, which allows protein-rich plasma to exude into the interstitial space of the lung and then translocate into the air spaces. Now, MSCs are attractive as a potential therapy for ARDS because they have multiple properties that may be beneficial in several of the different pathways of injury. They produce anti-inflammatory factors such as lipoxin A4, interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, IL-10, and macrophage-2 pro-resolving monocytes. Uh, They also can restore endothelial and epithelial barrier integrity by various pathways, including increasing type two cell regeneration. They can enhance alveolar and lung edema fluid clearance. And interestingly, they even have antimicrobial properties. Now the next slide just gives one example of one of our preclinical studies in which we gave MSCs to mice who had endotoxin lung injury. And you can see on the right hand side, the injury when the mice are treated just with control, PBS. And on the left-hand side, the MSCs, you can see a much improved um, histologic section with less edema and fewer inflammatory cells. And this was borne out on a lung injury score, as well as measurement of lung edema being reduced with the MSCs. Similar studies showed an increase in survival and benefit in live bacterial pneumonia. Now, the next slide shows a novel preparation that we've used in our laboratory for several years. And what we have displayed here is a human lung, which we uh, receive from brain dead donors when the lungs are not transplanted. And the lungs arrive at four degrees and are in generally very good shape. And we then, if they are in a good shape, we set them up for perfusion uh, warm them with, uh, to 37 degrees, cannulate the airways so they can be inflated with CPAP, and then add fresh blood to the circuit from one of us in the laboratory. And this constitutes a short-term model of lung injury. And in the studies relevant to MSCs, we ventured injured the lungs with endotoxin or live bacteria. And the effects were quite beneficial, providing preclinical evidence that this therapy might be beneficial in patients. This slide shows an example of the results of uh, one of those studies in which the uh, permeability of the lung vasculature is on the y-axis here. You can see that endotoxin or LPS increased it threefold and MSCs when delivered into the air spaces uh, reduced it and even the conditioned media did. And we found the same effect when we uh, measured the amount of pulmonary edema in the lung the MSCs reduced the quantity of pulmonary edema as did the conditioned media. In these same studies, we also measured the effects of live bacteria. And we again found that the MSCs reduce lung injury with the live bacteria. And in addition, as you can see visually here, MSCs, whether given in the bronchus or in the perfusate, increase the phagocytosis of the bacteria. And this is shown in um, graph form in the bottom part of the slide. So this was a novel discovery that MSCs can increase bacterial clearance. Um, And this has been uh, uh, confirmed by several other uh, laboratories as well. And the final preclinical model to just mention to you is our sheet model in which we created pseudomonas pneumonia and sepsis and tested the effect of two doses of MSCs. This was a severe sepsis pneumonia model over 24 hours. And you can see on this slide that oxygenation as measured on the y-axis over 24 hours on the x-axis was markedly improved with two different doses of MSCs given one time. And these were human mesenchymal stem cells that are harvested from normal donors, cryopreserved, and then shipped to us for treatment. And you can see in red or green how the oxygenation was definitely improved with either five or 10 million MSCs per kilogram. The next slide shows that in these same experiments, the higher dose of MSCs resulted in a reduction in pulmonary edema in the lungs after 24 hours. Um, The red indicates the higher dose and had a greater effect than the lower dose. So this is the one we selected for clinical trials. This slide is just a quick summary of the mechanisms by which MSCs may be effective in the injured lung. They can reduce pro-resolving factors such as lipoxin A4, ANG1, and growth factors such as KGF. They actually can reprogram macrophages through these exosomes to be more pro-resolving as well as to be antibacterial. And they can even transfer mitochondria to injured epithelial cells to improve their function by increasing ATP levels. Now, the next slide shows you briefly uh, the results of our phase one trial, just nine patients to get the clinical application going in which we tested for safety, three different doses of MSCs in nine patients with moderate to severe ARDS, and there were no uh, safety issues. So FDA said we could advance to do a phase two trial which is shown on this slide, it was a multi-center, randomized blinded placebo controlled trial. The MSC is given over one hour, 60 patients with two to one randomization, primary endpoints for safety and efficacy endpoints for secondary small trial. And uh, we measured biomarkers in the plasma and many BAL. This was published in 2018. And um, you can see um, on this slide that plasma angiopoietin 2 declined significantly in the patients who received the MSCs. This is an important finding because angiopoietin 2 is a marker of endothelial injury and also a mediator. And it almost achieved uh, significance at a later time point as well. And in brief, the conclusions from this phase 2A start trial was that there were no infusion related adverse events within six hours of infusion as in the phase one trial. As I showed you, there was a favorable biologic effect in reducing ANG2 in the plasma. There was also data that suggested a trend for short-term efficacy of the MSCs in reducing lung injury as measured by the oxygenation index during the first three days of ARDS. Post-hoc analysis indicated that MSC viability is an important factor in the clinical and biological effects in this small phase 2A trial. Now, the current trial that we are conducting is shown here and it's called the STAT trial as opposed to the START trial. And this is a 2B trial of MSCs for trauma and non-traumatic causes of ARDS. It's multicenter randomized blind to placebo control. The study agent is given over one hour intravenously the plan is to enroll 120 patients with one-to-one randomization. The primary efficacy endpoint is oxygenation index, and the patients will be stratified by trauma versus non-trauma and a PaO2, FiO2 of greater than or less than 150. Uh, we will measure biomarkers in the plasma, urine, and mini as well as RNA and DNA, and it's funded by the Department of Defense, NIH, and CIRM. The next slide shows uh, the participating clinical sites for this STAT phase IIb trial of MSCs for ARDS. Note the blue arrow here denotes two hospitals in San Francisco, uh, University of California, San Francisco, and Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. And we're adding, thanks to CIRM uh, later this month, a, um, another center at UC Davis. Our other participating centers are University of Washington, Seattle, University of Texas-Houston, and Vanderbilt in Nashville. Uh, this slide just highlights the primary endpoint that I mentioned of oxygenation Index, which will be measured at 6, 12, 18, 24, 30, and 36 hours as our primary evidence of efficacy. What is the status of the trial to date? Well, in the four hospitals that have been active, we've enrolled 29 patients, 26 of whom were COVID-19 positive. Most of the patients were enrolled at UCSF and Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, 22 of the 29 patients. Texas and Oregon have enrolled seven patients and we're hoping to open Vanderbilt, University of Washington, Seattle and UC Davis uh, in September. And then this slide is an important acknowledgement to so many individuals who have worked to make these trials possible, including my co-PI Kathleen Liu, medical director of the ICU, at uh, UC Parnassus, uh, Carolyn Hendrickson, who is medical director at San Francisco General Hospital, Dr. Patti Gotts, Dr. Calcut, who'll be the PI at UC Davis, Dr. Cornblith, who's been a major part of this uh, trial. And we just wanna thank the DSMB, Department of Defense, NHLBI, and CERN for this support. And finally, for the patients who consent to be part of these trials, and the ICU nursing and respiratory care staff. Thank you very much.
1: So
4: today's title of my lecture is United We Stand. These are the disclosures. Um, I am uh, involved in the two stem cell trials related to the COVID-19 infection. One is sponsored by the California uh, Institute of Regenerative Medicine and uh, Cellularity Incorporated. And the other one is PluriStem. I will be talking about these trials today. And I called my lecture um, United We Stand because divided we fall. We live in a, a very divided society, rich, poor, poor uh, women, um, men, you name it. And the current pandemic did not uh, help the situation uh, to make it better. With social distancing rules, we are even further from each other than ever before. As a physician, I always thought that in the face of a disease and death, we are all equal. As an American physician Samuel Johnson said, disease generally begins at equality that death completes. But does it? If we look at this um, distribution of mortality among Californians, it's mostly the um, older people who essentially assume all the mortality. But remember March of 2020, when we realized that the disease is coming to our neighborhoods, I was mortified. I was so scared for my children. But then looking at the fatality rate uh, of children, I felt the greatest relief. They are less likely to be affected. But then I looked at the other age extreme, my parents. What will happen to them? And as you can see, the majority of the people who have been affected are people above 60. This picture recently taken in Northern California symbolized so much death rampage through elderly community, and as the fire uh, is rampaging through this uh, senior center. And as we realize that uh, barrier precautions are, like mask are very important in prevention of COVID-19, what can we do when these measures fail? Of course, we all have our immunity, which separates us into individual organisms to the point that we cannot transplant anything to another human being without this uh, new organ being rejected unless we are using medications. So we are dividing again, divided again into separate immune systems. But these days, since uh, science allows us to administer some medications and transplant different uh, tissues, essentially we can unite humans in our quest to find the disease. So how about a possibility to share our immune response? I am fortunate to be involved in a stem cell clinical trial, uh, which help us share the immune system capabilities. But a little bit of background. We have different mechanisms in our defense response to bacteria and viruses. And one of the mechanisms is adaptive immunity. And that's why the vaccine is very important because it's very specific, very effective. That's how we eliminated polio. And when we give a vaccine or the person encounter a virus through multiple steps that require several weeks, we will eventually develop an immune response that will allow us uh, not to, for example, catch polio. And this mechanism essentially leads to creation of antibodies and killer cells. But as I said... This mechanism is not available right now for COVID 19. But we also have innate immunity. As we all studied at school, these are the macrophages that are capable of engulfing the viruses or bacteria and digesting it to something not dangerous to our body. What not? everyone realize there are also other cells. It's called natural killer cells. These cells survey our bodies daily. That's why we don't develop cancers, and that's why we don't develop diseases from some viruses that we've never encountered before. They kill everything that don't look like our own body. And these natural killer cells are part of this immunity. That's why a company, Cellularity, developed a new product that they called Sync 001, and these are natural killer cells that were harvested from, from placentas and uh, transplanted into patients suffering from COVID-19. This trial is sponsored by California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, and our expectations are that these transplanted cells will eliminate COVID-19 virus by killing the cells affected by the virus. The overall design is, of this trial is essentially it's a phase one study. It means that we will be looking for adverse events. That's how we start in research, with the phase one. And the first phase is usually a small number of patients, and in this trial, we will enroll 14 patients with COVID-19 infection. And um, these patients will be followed for up to 12 months. So these patients will be between 18 and 72 years old who are symptomatic from their COVID-19 infections like fever, cough, and uh, chest X-ray findings that consistent with their pneumonia from COVID-19 infection. And what we will be assessing is essentially the adverse events. But there is always a possibility that we will be able to advance to phase two. If we don't have any adverse events and if the efficacy will be at least uh, suggested by the result of this trial, we will go into the phase two. And in phase two, we are planning to enroll 86 patients. And these patients will be essentially um, monitored again for adverse events. But now we will be aiming for efficacy. And um, through doing serial tests from mucous membranes, like nasopharyngeal swabs, we will um, uh, find out how fast uh, we eliminate the uh, virus from the body. But there are different situations. we are, right now. We're talking about the situation where the immune response of the patients is not sufficient to clear the virus fast enough from the body. Another company, uh, Pluristem, essentially developed a different uh, uh, approach. They use the product called, called PLX PAD. This is a. Uh, different type of cells. They are mesenchymal-like cells, again, from the placenta, but it will be a phase two study. In this study, I'm excited to say that we will be using this drug in uh, severely affected patients, because sometimes what happens is that the body of a patient reacts so much that it damages not only the uh, cells affected by the virus, but also normal cells, to the point where the body cannot regenerate that tissue that was affected. So as a background, we need like um, the defense mechanisms to be in check with our ability to regenerate the tissue there. And in these patients, uh, the tissue is being destroyed so fast that it leads to more damage than good. So essentially in these patients, uh, it's important to put our immune system in check and kind of slow it down. And um, in this trial, we will be studying exactly these uh, stem cells that are helping us to do that. And it's a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial where we will enroll 140 patients and uh, we will observe them for 12 months. They will be between 40 and 80 years old And as I already said, they will be severely affected on mechanical ventilation admitted to the ICU. And we hope that we will achieve efficacy defined by the number of days the patient uh, spends on the uh, mechanical ventilation. If we are able to shorten the time that the patient is on the mechanical ventilation, it means the drug works. And I would like to say that all this efforts, all these clinical trials where we are capable of doing because as they here at uh, UCI, we together as researchers with the researchers from these companies and the researchers in the whole country, we unite together and fight from this disease. And the, another effort we as a taxpayers can contribute in this situation is essentially uh, five years ago, in, uh, California uh, citizens uh, decided uh, and created uh, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, and it's our uh, effort uh, where we together uh, essentially contribute to the development of science, and that's why we feel that it's a very important time in life in our lives where we all can contribute on different levels to help to defy this disease and um, defend ourselves from many other diseases that are coming through, um, through their uh, mutual common um, efforts. And that's why United We Stand. Thank you.
0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me on for this CERN meeting about the COVID-19 program. Uh, today, I'm gonna to talk about the peptides that activate T cells in COVID-19 patients. So first, I'm gonna go a little bit over the background about how the virus SARS-CoV-2 infects our body and produces these peptides that we can take advantage of to try to create a better vaccine. So basically, when a virus infects our body, it's hijacking the machinery of our normal cells to make more copies of themselves. So you probably recognize this picture. It's a very famous diagram of the way that the the virus looks when a person, uh, unfortunately becomes infected. That virus uh, travels through their airways and starts to infect the tissues of the lung cells and, and the intestinal cells. Once it contacts a cell, it starts to make more copies of itself and Ultimately, those copies get released by the cell so that goes into the airway and affects other cells or into the bloodstream and infects other tissues within our body. Now, the problem is when those viruses hit other cells, they're going to make more viruses. And then before you know it, you people come down with the illness. And then before you know it, after that, we've got a pandemic happening throughout the world. Now, a downfall of when a virus Is infecting a cell is that it's actually pretty messy. It tries to make many, many copies of itself, but a lot of those are miscopied, bad copies. And so uh, what I'm showing here is that instead of a, a nice virus, we've got parts of a virus that happen. So when that happens, our cell tries to deal with that. Our cells have a way of disposing of these bad proteins, and that is actually ultimately how our body recognizes viruses. So this is a molecule within our cell called the proteasome. And what it does is degrade or is the garbage disposal of bad cell proteins. Now, due to COVID-19, I've become a lot more expert in things I don't wanna be an expert in. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I had to change our garbage disposal, and that's right here. now. I purposely picked a picture that shows the same kind of orientation as the proteasome because when you toss your pizza into the garbage disposal, it's chopping it up. And in the same way, when we have a bad protein in the cell, it goes into the top of the proteasome and out comes even smaller proteins. These are digested short parts of proteins called peptides or even the individual amino acids. Now from there, our body tries to defend itself by increasing the number of T cells. Now I've specifically showing within the cell, just those small peptides, not the whole virus, but there's a lot going on in cell. um, But just for clarity, I'm showing the small peptides within the cell. So within the cell, these small peptides then get put onto another molecule. And I'm just gonna abbreviate it rather than reading off the whole name. It's called the HLA molecule. So these peptides within the cell that are from the virus now actually are shown on the surface of the cell. In turn, our T cells, and we have millions and billions of these within our body, and they're in various parts of our body, when they encounter a cell with an HLA molecule that it can specifically recognize. So here we have a T cell, and in turn it has a receptor called the TCR. And this particular T cell has the specific receptor complex for this HLA with these specific SARS-CoV-2 peptides. So if all that matches up, then This T cell will do two things. First, it will kill the infected cell. So that's how we get rid of infected cells in our body when we're infected with a virus. And then the second thing is, it will make many, many more copies of itself so that in the future, our body can defend itself against these invading pathogens. Now, how does a vaccine work? So the concept behind a vaccine is basically the uh, good old dogma using the hair of the dog that bit you. So this is our little puppy, uh, Bo. He's actually a lot bigger now. That's when we just got him. But uh, uh, the concept behind a vaccine is take that little bit of the the virus that's invading us and try to increase the number of T cells and antibodies by pre-stimulating the immune system. So, What we get when we get a a vaccine are pieces of the virus. It's not the whole virus, uh, it's just parts of it. And then in turn, that will stimulate our immune system, hopefully bringing up these cells that will specifically recognize that piece of the COVID virus on our cells in our body and multiply that. So now our body is ready for when an actual virus comes along and tries to infect us. It also creates antibodies, and um, and that's a big target of vaccines right now. I don't want to get into that. I just want to focus on our T-cell work today. So why do we want to identify what the T-cell recognizes? Well, first of all, a vaccine is not as simple as giving a ground-up virus. Now, the very earliest viruses, like when um, Edward Jenner and... Um, Louis Pasteur made their vaccines. They could basically just take the virus, grind it up and give it to people and that worked. That's true for certain viruses, but it's definitely not true for coronaviruses and other types of viruses. In fact, actually most parts of a virus don't increase the amount of T cells when they're in their body. Right now we have a lot of vaccines in clinical trials. These were rushed into production uh, I I certainly don't fault people for wanting to, to try to get something to production cuz we really need it. Now, those are using large parts of the virus. It might work. Unfortunately, there are precedents that for the coronaviruses, large parts don't necessarily work. That you actually have to hone down and get specific parts of the virus. So, what we proposed in our work is that the next generation of vaccines Should really focus on the key parts that stimulate T cells. Now, the advantage of doing that is you are going to pick out the essential elements of the virus, and you're going to have it a much higher concentration when you give it to a person. You're going to avoid potential side effects from the non-useful parts of the vaccine of the virus, and that's especially true now. Uh, Just recently, they halted the AstraZeneca trial because of a side effect uh, noted in one patient. Now we don't know whether or not it's due to having that whole part of the virus there, but certainly you can reduce the amount of side effects if you're just taking out the key parts of the virus. Now for our specific approach, we can make these small peptides on a peptide synthesizer. So it's not a different, difficult biological production. When you make a whole virus and grind it up, you actually have to produce it in cells. It's a huge production. You have to have these enormous vats and grow up cells and then purify it and make sure it's clean. With a peptide synthesizer, it's just getting it out of the machine and it's almost ready to go straight out of that machine. So what is our method for isolating these key parts? Well, we make key parts of the infamous spike protein in a peptide synthesizer. We then incubate those parts of the spike protein with purified proteasome. So this is all happening in a test tube. Now the proteasome does its job and releases many, many small peptides in the test tube. And we collect those degraded peptides. Now, some of the peptides are the ones that we want. Some are the ones that we don't want. And I show the ones that we don't want in the open triangles. We can collect those peptides from our proteasome digestion and then incubate it in a test tube that has the HLA molecule attached. Now, we let it incubate, and the HLA molecules will recognize the virus peptides that we're interested in and specifically bind those. The ones that we don't want won't bind, and they're sitting free in the, in the aqueous solution of the test tube. Next, we can get rid of the peptides that we don't want by washing the test tube, and then we can elute the peptides that we do want off the HLA molecules for the next step. Now, I want to emphasize that the amount of virus that we're getting from this kind of uh, test tube experiment is extremely small it's only on the order of 10 to the minus 15th grams, which is a femtogram or so of molecule. And that's not very much at all. But technology has progressed to the point where we can se- sequence those peptides in something called a mass spectrometer and determine the amino acid sequence of those peptides, as I'm showing here. Now, once we know the sequences of those peptides, we can then in turn synthesize them on the peptide synthesizer. So we're going from this information that only has femtograms, 10 to the minus 15th grams, to getting the sequence information, to putting onto a peptide synthesizer, then we can make milligram to gram quantities of that particular peptide. Once we have that much peptide, there's many, many experiments we can do And first, we wanna ensure that the peptides that we've sequenced actually do indeed work. So we do uh, test tube experiments again to verify that the peptide will bind to HLA in a specific kind of test tube experiment called a a, uh, binding experiment. Next, we will show that the peptides can induce the killing of human cells that express the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, using um, human stem cells. And then finally, we want to confirm that at least in animal models, that the peptides will induce a protective T cell response that will protect from SARS-CoV-2 infection. So the ultimate goal of our work is to determine the peptides that can go into the next generation of vaccines with the ultimate goal of ending our pandemic.
1: Thank you so much for those very inspiring presentations. Uh, First question that we have received was related to the availability of your presentations. And uh, yes, all the presentations will be available to listen post-conference. There'll be links of the recorded video. And if you are registered on Eventbrite, we will email you additional information. The next question is a question for Dr. Zaya. Dr. Zaya, do patients have to wait a certain amount of time after a positive diagnosis to donate convalescent plasma? If they donate too soon, would it decrease their response to the virus, i.e. take them longer to recover, made the COVID worse for them?
2: That's a good question. Initially, um, you had to wait a certain amount of time um, At least 14 days, certainly. And at that time, if it was early before day 28, you needed uh, proof that you did not um, have active virus. But at the present time, those have changed. And the the FDA now requires that you have some proof of a prior infection, either um, with the PCR test or with an antibody test. And then the collection site will test that, and there'll be more or less a release test. And the FDA is asking for the, collection sites now to define uh, a high titer or a low titer um, specimen um, using the ortho uh, antibody test. Um, You can also then give plasma um, relatively frequently. Uh, Many centers collect once, allow collection once per week, but most of them I think are doing once every two weeks. You can, as I said in the talk, you can yield about three to four units. So a person with a good antibody titer could um, yield, you know, with four collections, they could yield 12 to to 16 um, units.
1: So just to clarify the second part of the question, Dr. Zaya, would uh, a recovering donor be affected in any way by the donation? Would it make them
2: more more exposed to disease? Would would that affect your your own antibody levels?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I think that's the question. I don't believe that we think that happens. I mean, it's hard to know because you, you have waning immunity that is waning antibody levels normally, um, and I don't think you are re- removing sufficient amounts of antibody to affect uh, an increase in that uh, normal decrease.
1: Thank you so much for clarification. Dr. Matai, the next question is a question addressed to you. I'm reading... Uh, you mentioned that you use MSCs to treat ARDS. Could MSCs also be used to treat COVID-19 patients as well?
3: Well, yes. In fact, uh, the vast majority of the patients we have already treated with COVID-19 ARDS, uh, with ARDS have had COVID-19 positive. 26 of the 29 patients have actually been positive for COVID-19 who developed ARDS.
1: Thank you, thank you for that clarification. The next question, is addressed to Dr. Groisman. Dr. Groisman, aren't the NK cell and the MSCs that you use for therapy foreign cells to the patient? Do you get any problems with immune rejection?
4: So it's true that they're foreign, but at the beginning they are supposed to perform the functions that we discuss, essentially in case of the NK cells, they will hopefully eliminate the uh, virus from the body by eliminating the cells, the innate cells of the patient that are affected by the virus. And in case of uh, mesenchymal stem cells, hopefully they will uh, stimulate the regenerative forces in the lungs. So the the hope that in acute periods these cells will act, but eventually will be eliminated by the uh, uh by our own immune system and that is good because as we know in the past sometimes uh, transplant may act against the host in different ways so essentially it's kind of uh after they perform their functions they essentially will be eliminated by our immune system which is expected dr wang
1: there are two questions for you the first one addresses a well known debate in the field. How long do the T cells last relatively to antibodies? Why are we trying to get one versus the other?
0: Well, that's a very important question. Uh, recent research is showing that antibodies against SARS CoV 2 last maybe on average 30 to 60 days, and immunity actually may be totally gone within three months. Uh, now, we We don't know absolutely for SARS-CoV-2 yet because the the pandemic has only been going on nine months now. We know from SARS patients, the original SARS virus back in uh, 2003, that uh, at least one patient that was retested 17 years later actually did show T cell immunity. So that's extremely promising that T cells can last an extremely long time. There's been at least six other patients who've been tested and have immunity uh, 11, uh, 13, and 14 years uh, post-SARS.
1: Another question for you, Dr. Wang. When you test peptide for T cell responses, how do you detect the T cell cytokine secretion for the specific response? More general, what kind of biomarkers do you use? Uh,
0: yes, actually, we're using a set of the uh, well-known T cell markers, uh, particularly interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, Uh, other indicators that the T cells are activated.
1: And another question about your treatment, proposed treatment. As there are many HLA HLA genotypes, how do you choose which one for which peptide? Do you intend to use multiple peptides? Would you have a personalized vaccine for every patient depending on the peptides and the HLA?
0: Right, that's a very good question because as the questioner asks, it, t- it turns out that we're very diverse with respect to the HLA molecules that we have. So to cover uh, all the people within California, you really have to look at multiple types of HLA proteins. And we do intend to do that. I, I wanted to simplify it somewhat, but actually um, what, what's what been found uh, by scientists at the La Jolla Institute is that there are about a dozen what are called supertypes that cover uh, 85% of the world's population. So we have uh, access to those now. So we're going to be using uh, those 12 supertypes. And so in that way, we'll be able to identify the HLA peptides for uh, most of the world's population. Now, there will be some overlap, we hope, uh, so that when you, when one does have a HLA-focused vaccine, that you're not having to give an individual vaccine. I do believe that you can also just simply combine all the peptides that you might find buying the various uh, HLA molecules and give it as a sale vaccine. I don't think there's any problem in doing that.
1: So I want to thank our speakers and our attendees for this wonderful session. We have all learned a lot. There are many other sessions today and tomorrow, and I hope that you're going to find the time to attend as many of them as possible. And with this, again, thanking everybody, and I would like to close this session.